You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. Good morning, church. Thank you once again for joining us online. We do have uh, some of our leadership team that is, is here in person that have gathered with us. So if you hear any hooping and hollering, they're kind of a rowdy bunch. They are here in person. But for all everyone joining us online, thank you so much for being with us once again this morning in these unique days. You know, I do want to address uh, just the decisions that we are, we are diving or wrestling through as a, as a leadership team. We don't take this lightly. Um, these are not easy decisions to make when and how we reopen our church for actually connecting. And I, I, there's two real priorities that we have at the forefront of our minds. One is safety, the safety of our people. We, we had safety as a priority before the pandemic, but in the midst of a pandemic, obviously safety is uh, in a whole new way a priority. And so we're thinking through how do, we, how do we assure safety? How do we keep people safe in these unique times? But there's a second priority, which is um, the way in which we actually envision the, the, the gathering of God's people, which is connecting face-to-face in, in meaningful relationship, meaningful connection. And so for us moving forward, um, it's hard for us to think of how we'd facilitate a gathering if it's just about getting people into seats and then getting them out of here. Um, Because for us, that's not church. For us, church is the gathering together of God's people to connect so we can equip people for them to be sent out. And that takes face-to-face interaction. It takes real relationships, people connecting in genuine ways. So it's not a matter of just hurting people in and out. So we're wrestling through all of this uh, in the days to come. And those are our priorities, safety and genuine connection. And so when we can do that in good conscience, when we can do that as we're praying before the Lord and, and feel the green light from, um, from the Lord in our leadership, we, um, we're going to do it, and we'll be communicating those things uh, as clearly as we can. And so please stay tuned. Um, continue to check in on our website, livethemessage.org slash coronavirus, for all the updates on those decisions in the days to come. But I am hopeful, I'm excited um, that we are moving in the right direction. In terms of the flattening of the curve and the, the trends, they seem to be going in the right direction. Testing is, is increasing all the more. Uh, all the contact tracing, all that stuff is increasing. And so there's a lot of hope on the horizon uh, in the days to come for us to, again, believe that we will gather in person. Come on. YouTube live, Facebook live, you should shout out some amens there because uh, we are coming to the end, okay? Just believe it. Um, This morning, I want you to turn to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21. That's right, we're going to go to the end of the story. This morning, I'm going to convince our hearts that we are in the midst of God's redemptive story. I don't know if you've ever thought of um, wanting to live in Bible times. Well, I have news for you this morning. You live in Bible times. We are living in the midst of Bible times. The story is not over. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is this truth that the the story is not over. The Bible story, God's redemptive story, it's not over. We oftentimes solely talk about it in a historical sense. Um, And obviously that's very important for us to understand that. But there's still yet much to come. And we live with with a sense of anticipation and expectation for what is yet to come. And Revelation 21 gives us that picture. I remember when my son... um, I have one son, and when he was two years old, he was just enthralled by the story of David and Goliath, so much so that he was 
I mean, he was so frightened by the idea of Goliath, this giant that would come against this, this little boy. And he knew the story that David would defeat Goliath, but still, like, the frightening sense of the reality of this giant uh, would overwhelm him. So much so that when we'd close our Bible, we'd stick it on his shelf in his room, he would request for us to take the Bible out of his room. He'd say, Mommy, Daddy, please take the Bible out of my room. I don't want, to, I don't want Goliath to get me. Um, because for him, it was, it was so real, this, this idea that, that Goliath really lived, he really breathed, he really, he really faced Goliath, I mean, really faced David, and David over, overcame him. It, it was real. And the reality is, this book is a real story, and we are smack dab in the center of it right now. We, there is still much that is yet to come. There's still much that is yet to happen, and we mistakenly too oftentimes wrongly place ourselves outside of the redemptive timeline. When in reality, we're in it right now, folks. I want there to be this sense of anticipation and expectation of the restoring work, the restorative work that God is doing on the earth. The story is not over. God is restoring and he will restore all things. And that's what we are going to look toward this morning in Revelation 21. So as we get to Revelation 21, I know the book of Revelation can be a mysterious book. It can be an intimidating book. Um, but as we get to Revelation 21, there is much, there's much that has transpired. Last week, we talked about the return of Christ. At this point in Revelation 21, that has taken place. Um, the return of Christ, the, the revealing of the Antichrist, the, uh, the millennial reign of Christ, that's, that stuff has all taken place. And now we, we reach... Uh, we reach the restoration of all things. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I mean, so all those things I just listed, the coming of Christ, the revealing of the Antichrist, the millennial reign of Christ, all that stuff is yet to come. That's why I want you to know we are still in Bible times. We are in the midst of God's redemptive timeline. The story is not over. So let's look at what Revelation chapter 21 says in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John talking. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and, the death shall be no, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said this, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that, fire, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a restorative work that Jesus is in the midst of working on the earth. And this day is coming. This day is coming when there will be a restoration of all things. And I want, to, I want us to turn our hearts toward that this morning. I know the, the book of Revelation can be intimidating, it can be mysterious, and, 
And in all honesty, there's so much that we have yet to understand regarding this beautiful book. I, I, but I believe there's, there's several things that we can very readily glean from this, this book. And one is this, that Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. We think of Jesus, meek and mild in the historical sense, him coming and sacrificially serving and loving all of humanity, giving his life on the cross. But the picture in the book of Revelation is a different perspective on the resurrected Christ, the anointed one. We see this one who, who is and who was and is to come. He's the Almighty. We see that in Revelation chapter 1. There's nothing fragile about Jesus. You know, in this day and age when everything is fragile, everything is shaking, everything seems temporal, we see in Jesus one who is and who was and who is to come. We see this one whose eyes are like flames of fire. There's no fear or trepidation. There's no shaking in him. We see this one whose voice is like the roar, whose voice is like the roar of many waters. We see this one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see this one who is the lamb that was slain. We see the one who is called the king of all the nations. And everyone recognizes him as such. And we see this one who is the faithful and true warrior riding on his white horse. And his name is the word of God. It's Jesus and he is beautiful Yes, he was a historical man that walked the earth, but I, but I have news for you that he's alive today. And the revelation of him in the days to come is one who is so beautiful, so mighty, so strong, so sure. And we have this revelation of Jesus. It's this one who's writing a story for humanity. He's writing a story of his restora- restoration of all things. And today, we are in the midst of it. We're in the midst of God's story. It's not over. He is in the work today of restoring, and he will restore all things. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is in the business of restoring things? So what is God restoring? I believe there's a few things that we can see right here as we turn our eyes towards this new heaven and this new earth. There's a few things that we can be confident that he, he prioritizes, prioritizes in his restorative work. So what is God restoring? What is this King Jesus, King of the nations, what is he restoring? Firstly, this, the dwelling place of God with humanity. There's this phrase in verse three. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will... He will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is not an afterthought here in Revelation 21. This is not a passing phrase that John just senses in this heavenly um, encounter, this divine visitation. No, this is a central theme to God's redemptive story. The dwelling place of God being with humanity. So this is a major part of God's restorative work. Let's just think back to the garden. What did God create? What did he initiate in the garden? He created this place where there was unhindered fellowship between God and man. Where humanity, where Adam and Eve, they they walked in the cool of the morning with God. Like a friend would walk with his friend. There was this sense of perfect friendship and relationship with God. 
And obviously that was destroyed by man's rebellion, by our own willful decision to turn our backs on God and take things into our own hands. All that was destroyed by our own sin. But did God flee the scene? Did he leave us to our end? No. God begins bringing us back to that central theme of God wanting to dwell with us. God wanting relationship, wanting friendship with us. For us to know his presence, for us to know his reality. And we see it in in the, the story of Moses. God reveals to Moses that he needs to build a tent of meeting or a tabernacle. And that's actually the the phrase that that can easily be translated right here in Revelation 21, verse 3. And the tabernacle of God is with man. It's pointing back to that mosaic concept of God wanting to dwell with the children of Israel. For that to be the distinctive that sets them apart from the rest of the nations. Is that God actually wants to dwell with us. We see it later then in, in the story of King David. God reveals to David that He wants him to build him a house because he wants that that central revelation of his presence to be be in the midst of the the children of Israel, the, the nation of Israel. And so his son, David's son, Solomon, builds the temple. As you continue to fast forward through the redemptive story, obviously when Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And it initiates the next chapter in this aspect of God's restorative work. He initiates this, this, uh, this new reality of Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us. When we place our faith in Jesus as Savior, we become the temple. We become this tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us because God's priority is for him to dwell with us. So we have this foretaste of what is to come. What we are experiencing in our day and age is extremely good news. This is a phenomenally good message. The presence of God dwelling with us, but it only gets better. There's something even more to come. This is a foretaste of what is to come. There's there's a day and age coming in this new heaven and this new earth where God will dwell with man in an even greater reality. So from Genesis to Revelation, God's aim is to dwell with humankind. It's not an afterthought. This is not a passing thought in this heavenly revelation or heavenly visitation. No, this is a central theme of God's redemptive story and his redemptive timeline. And the next chapter is going to be even greater. It'll be a newer reality, a new level of intimacy, an even more perfect relationship and unhindered fellowship with God. It's going to be a picture of the garden, but 2.0. It's going to be the garden 2.0. Just look back and study that passage in, in Revelation. I mean, in Genesis chapter 2. And as we look towards the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to be, be that, but even greater. So what else is God restoring? What is King Jesus, King of the nation, the king, king of the nations, this one whose eyes are like flames of fire, this, this mighty warrior coming on his white horse, what else is he in the business of restoring? Well, he is in the business of removing all pain and suffering. We see that promise in verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
He is in the business of making all things new and removing all pain and suffering. So there is coming a day when the horrors that we experience in this world will be no more. This new heaven and new earth will be a place that is absent from the curse that we live under in this world. So again, let's think back to the garden. Think back to the garden where there there weren't weeds and disease. Come on, imagine a place with no mosquitoes, no sunburns, no headaches, no COVID-19. None of that existed in the garden. And ultimately, no no death. It's the removal of all pain and suffering. And God has been revealing that priority of heaven throughout his redemptive story. I know a common question that many people ask, we, we oftentimes ask as we read through God's story of creation, is we ask the question, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? My, my own kids, my older two kids have, have asked that question before. It doesn't, doesn't take a much pondering of the creation story to have that question come into our minds. Why would God allow, why, isn't it, isn't it kind of cruel for God to even put it there? just to kind of tease us into rebellion, to tease us into sin. But I believe the most compelling answer is God's priority of free will love. The highest form of love is through our own volition, our own choice. And so from the very beginning, God has had that as a priority. He wants people that are his own and that are actually in real love relationship with him, not some sort of robotic mechanized, pre-programmed pseudo-love, but a real love from our own volition. And that means there needs to be a choice. And so obviously we chose our own selfish ways. Each and every one of us, we've chosen our own selfish ways. We did exactly what Adam and Eve did, and we chose our own ways. We thought we we could come up with better answers than God himself could come up with. We're like a kid tempted with candy. We can't say no. But obviously Jesus came and he demonstrated for us this sort of free will from his own volition, from his, his own choice. He chose to love. He came to ch- and chose to demonstrate love. Free will love demonstrated for humanity by fulfilling the required punishment for sin and giving his life. So how do we, as we look forward towards the new heaven and the new earth, How do we know that it won't just be like the garden and there'll be, again, a tree of knowledge of good and evil and, again, we'll just fall to our own rebellion? How do we know that we're not just going to fall again to our own selfish ways? Why, Why will we, as the conquerors, why will we really conquer sin on the other side? Why will there be this freedom from rebellion, true freedom from the curse? This new heaven and new earth will be different, not because free will will vanish, but because everyone present will be looking upon their Savior. Everyone there in this new heaven and new earth will see the reality of love demonstrated and the the grotesque costliness of that love, the costliness of sin, the costliness of free will choice. They'll see, they'll be enamored by this one who has healed the nations, by this one who has paid for the salvation of the nations. He'll be before our eyes. You see, Adam and Eve, they didn't have that revelation. They didn't have this revelation of this one who paid for it all. 
This one who stands before them and says, come and drink with no payment. The garden was free will choice without any knowledge or wisdom of the effects of not choosing love. The new heaven and new earth will be free will choice that exists with knowledge and wisdom. And it's all centered around this one who visibly is the image of perfect love and the costliness of sacrificial love. So what does this mean for here and now? Are we just, you know, are we just uh, as followers of Jesus called to hunker down and, and kind of hope for some future day in its coming? Or what, what do we carry now as the people of God living in the midst of his redemptive story? We carry a message of good news for the here and now. Not just some future day. You see, Jesus paid for our forgiveness and for our healing. Anytime we sin, we are living outside of our identity as children of God. And so every time we choose to walk in freedom as children of God, we, we choose to live in our identity as sons and as daughters, we are demonstrating to the world a picture of what is to come and a picture of what, what the Savior paid for. We have this mandate upon our lives to demonstrate that to the world around us. This world that is to come, this restoration of all things, we have this mandate upon our lives That's why we pray for healing. And we believe it's God's will to heal every single time. Because it's by his stripes that we are healed. Does that mean we experience healing every time we pray for it? No. There's a a greater restoration coming. But we know the payment that he paid on the cross was sufficient for healing every single time. No question about it. And so that's the way we pray as the children of God, knowing that anytime we experience healing in this world, it's a foretaste of a greater restoration to come. And we don't have to be the ones that that try to discern why they did or did not get healed. Instead, we place our faith in the sufficiency of what Christ paid for on the cross, and we believe for salvation every single time, we believe for forgiveness every single time, and we believe and pray for healing every single time. Because Jesus is in in the business of restoring all things. He is in the business of saving and healing. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's how we're going to live as people that have been redeemed, the people that are being restored, that have experienced this aspect of Jesus. So every time we experience healing, we experience a foretaste of this world to come where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more death. So I hope you're tracking with me. I know that this can be dense to like ponder philosophically the, the, the age to come, but it actually has great relevance on our present life. And it actually does cause us to live differently in this age. Third is this, the third thing that God is restoring. It's the family of God. There's a greater revelation of the family of God coming, that God is restoring It's part of his redemptive work. And this has been a priority of heaven. The new heaven and the new earth will be a great separation. I mean, and there's some intimidating language here. It's the great separation between those who have been adopted into the family of God and those who have not. So those who are called sons of God, those who are children of God. I mean, it's it's amazing. There's a heritage. There's an inheritance There's a belonging, a security in Christ. But there's some scary news as well in this passage. He says, for those 
who do not choose Jesus. For the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion, so their heritage, their inheritance, their reward will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's look at this list, because I know this can be intimidating for some. But I want, to, I want to make clear that this is a very indiscriminate list. This is not a list that, that is meant to highlight certain um, rankings of the worst sins. It's not even meant to be an exhaustive list of um, you know, the, 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 the choice sins of humanity. The common denominator in this list is not the type of sin, but it's this, this list represents those who never chose grace. They never chose to trust Jesus. Instead, they stub, stubbornly tried to figure it out on their own. So sometimes I believe that we, we kind of misunderstand these judgment statements. I mean, these are statements that John, in this heavenly visitation, John quotes something very similar to what Jesus said, you know, in the Olivet Discourse or even that, some of the lists that Paul lists in his letters. But sometimes we, we misunderstand these statements as statements of judgment between those who are really good at being good, kind of the goody two-shoes, and those who are, you know, they just can't get over themselves and they just can't get over, like, making stupid decisions. So you got the people that are really good at making good decisions, people that are really stupid, Continually, and that's the great separator. That's a complete misunderstanding of, of what's going on here. The great separator is not based on how good we are at making moral decisions. The great separator is whether or not we're willing to put our trust in Jesus, whether or not we're willing to place our faith in the grace of Jesus as sufficient. That is the only separator between these two inheritances, these two, the heritage of these two, the portion of these two groups. It's whether or not we trust in Jesus, plain and simple. We see at the very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, he talks about Jesus. He says, to him who loves us and he's freed us from our sins by the blood of Jesus. And he's made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is at the very greeting or the beginning opening statements of this book as the great separator, these ones who are set apart as a kingdom of priests to God, they have been freed by the blood of Jesus, not by their own works, not because of their amazing ability to make moral decisions, but because of their willingness to lay themselves down before this one who sacrificed everything on their behalf. That is the great separator. That is the big difference, the only difference. It's the grace of God. It's faith in Jesus' ability to forgive and so, this new heaven and this new earth, as we, as we look towards the days to come, we are in the midst of God's redemptive story, as we look towards the days to come, this new heaven and this new earth, it will be a greater expression of family than we can ever imagine. It's the ultimate sense of belonging. You have your place at the table. It's the ultimate sense of camaraderie. He calls us in this, in this passage the conquerors. It's like the post-victory celebration. If, you ever, if you've ever won a game of anything in your life, just think of the glee and the, the sense of camaraderie on the team. 
That's what this is like. We're all on the other side of the victory, tasting and basking in the goodness of the victory of God, partaking in that. There's this perfect sense of unity because all that will matter is that Father God has adopted us into his family. There'll be no insecurities, no jealousy, no sibling rivalry, no fighting over the dinner table or whatever your family is like today. It will be true family. So what does that mean for us today? Well, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to demonstrate this to the world around us. We demonstrate to them, and we in New Testament community, we get to experience a foretaste of what is to come. I'll guarantee you that our community and our family here at LifePoint Church is not a perfect family. Sometimes there is jealousy and, and fighting and sibling rivalries, all those things. But there are moments. There's, there are moments when Holy Spirit just shows up There are moments when we experience unity and belonging and security and confidence and trust in our midst where it's a foretaste of what is to come. It is a foretaste of heavenly realities. It's a foretaste of this new heaven and this new earth, the family of God. So we are called to be living demonstrations of these three things. We are called, and this is the mandate. I didn't bring this message to you this morning just to, um, from a theological or doctrinal perspective, kind of check the box in terms of this is what we believe about the future. This has great implications on how we live today. We are called to demonstrate these priorities of heaven in the here and now. We are called to demonstrate what it means to be a people that dwell with the presence of God in our midst, to be people that acknowledge his reality in our coming and our going in our everyday uh, life, that the dwelling place of God is meant to be with humanity. We are called to be a people that demonstrate heaven's priority of salvation and healing every single time. You never have to question God's will for a person's life when you look at them and they're in pain, they're in sickness, or they're maybe far from God, you can know that his will for their life is salvation and healing every time. And we have a mandate upon our lives to demonstrate the family of God, to, be- to demonstrate belonging and true community, true unity in the world, you know, in a world right now in chaos and division. The church is needed more than ever to demonstrate this heavenly priority, this heavenly reality of the family of God. Hope for God's restoration is so important in the life of Leo. I'm going to call the worship team forward. They're going to sing that song, Graves into Gardens, that we were singing because the, the message is just so perfect. As we, as we think about God's power to restore and the fact that we are in the midst of it right now, I was trying to, I was trying to think of how to like, tie a bow on this. Like, how, do I, how do I describe this like, in language that begins to translate to us? And I thought of a season of my life where I was separated from Tanya by an ocean, literally. We, we were engaged while I was in, I spent a summer in Rwanda and Tanya was back in the States. So that means before I left, I was strategic enough to pop the question and then leave her to plan the wedding. But that, that separation of an ocean is similar to the, the separation that we're experiencing right now. 
is there is there's a greater anticipation of a fuller reality to come. And Revelation 19 actually calls this grand celebration in heaven the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because this great union of the fulfillment, this escalation of God's redemptive story is gonna be like a wedding party, a wedding celebration. Like the, the bringing together of a bride and a bridegroom together on that day. So it's like right now, we are in a season of engagement. So what did my bride have? You know, when I left her, I mean, I didn't like leave her, leave her, but I, when I went overseas uh, to Rwanda that summer, I popped the question, I put a ring on her finger. It became like a deposit, like a promise that I was giving her. That I'm gonna come back for you. We're gonna experience something amazing together. Like we're truly gonna be one in God. I gave her this foretaste of what was to come. And then when I was there, when I was in Rwanda, was I just silent? Was I just completely detached? No, we talked almost every day. This was kind of before the day of FaceTime and even Skype, but we would email every day, long emails like lovers do. We would write postcards to each other. We would talk on the phone. All of this in anticipation and expectation of what was to come. And every time I heard her voice, every time she heard my voice, every time we exchanged pictures, there was this like, this was a foretaste of what was to come. And we're gonna spend real time together. We're really gonna be together. Like right now we get to experience it to a certain degree, but it's gonna be even greater. There's something even greater coming. And that's what you and I are living in the midst of. So we don't just put it off and say, oh, we're only gonna experience those things in heaven. No, we do get certain foretastes of what is to come right now. So we don't just hunker down in our bunkers as believers, just wanting to be rescued from this world. We take this mandate upon ourselves to be people that carry this, this mission in our hearts to demonstrate the priorities of heaven to the world around us. People that demonstrate the priority, the presence of God in our city, demonstrate salvation and healing in our city, demonstrate what the family of God's supposed to be like. That is the mandate of the people of God. So I'll end with the final words of Christ in the book of Revelation. He says, surely I'm coming soon. This is like, this is the words of the bridegroom himself for his bride. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, John says. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So I want us to respond to Jesus this morning. We're going to respond through this song. But I, I really felt my heart to commission us as a church, especially in this season where there's so much uncertainty, there's a shaking going on in the earth, and God has been waking up, waking us up. There's many, there's been many prophetic voices that have been talking about this coming great awakening. I believe the great awake, this great awakening is only going to come if the church is ready and anticipating it. If the church is praying it in with a spirit of expectation and faith. So I want to commission us to be that church that believes for God to move in our day for, for the fact that he's inviting us into his redemptive work. So I'm going to pray a prayer of commissioning over us. Then after that, I do want to invite anybody that has joined with us this morning that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning to initiate, start a relationship with God, to surrender your life to Christ. You want to be amongst those who say, I'm placing my trust in Jesus. This morning, you know you've been living outside of that, outside of the grace of God. You've been running from Him. 
You've been trying to do things on your own. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus this morning. So let's pray. Lord, right now I commission our church to live in these days as ones who have a mandate upon our lives, a mission upon our lives. We would feel commissioned into this world to demonstrate the presence of God, to demonstrate salvation and healing, to demonstrate the family of God in this age. That, Lord, we would be like engaged lovers in anticipation of that day of fuller realities, of greater realities. There's a greater sense of the gospel and its fullness that is to come. But that doesn't mean we, we just put it off for some future day and it's irrelevant to the here and now. We want to be ones with, that live with this sense of responsibility to carry the message well in our day and age, to truly live out this message of the gospel, this message of this God who restores all things in our day and age. Lord, let it be, I pray in your name. I pray just a fire in the hearts of every single person that's joined with us this morning to live it out in your mighty name. And secondly, if you want to surrender your life to Christ this morning, pray a prayer like this. You can pray it in your own words. The thing of importance is that you pray from your own heart, surrendering yourself to him, coming to the end of yourself. So Lord, this morning, this is the way we pray. Lord, I choose to surrender my life to you. I look upon you as the Savior who took upon yourself the full payment of my sin. There was nothing I could do to clean myself up. I couldn't accumulate enough right choices to save myself. Instead, this morning, I come to the end. I come to this dead end. And I fall before you and I surrender myself fully to you as Savior, as Lord, as Redeemer, as the Restorer. Come and do a work in me. Make all things new in me, Jesus. From this day forward, no turning back. Amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. 